the journey towards a signature diet. That's what we're talking about on the Low Tox Life podcast today. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 290. I have a wonderful man joining me on the show today who has, whoa, has he studied a lot of different things. His name is Bill Giles. You may or may not have heard of him, uh, but let me just share a little snapshot of the breadth Uh, and variety in his experience of study. So he's an immunobiologist and a yoga teacher. His post-grad studies were degrees in science from the University of Queensland and the Australian National University specialising in ecology, ethology, biology. Post-university training included uh, being employed on the CSIRO research teams, Uni of Queensland, John Curtin School, uh, and his focus became human immunobiology, which is a branch of biology that examines the ecology and function of the immune system in the variety, in the various ways in which it deals with infections, toxins, cancers, autoimmune diseases, and its attempts to maintain optimal health of the individual uh, cells that compose the body. Really fascinating uh, body of work. So uh, his clinical career commenced in 1987 and uh Gosh, I could just go on and on, but basically the principal aim overall has been to empower people who are experiencing chronic immune-related health issues with tools to regain and maintain normal health as they age. Uh, And today in the show, he talks to us about what that looks like and what some of the considerations are. And we really have a very deep look at some of the biological aspects of what aging Uh, is what happens. And as Bill says, it's not the food that changes as we age, it's us that changes. And that is why the idea of having a perfect human diet from zero to death is crazy. You know, so many factors make it make sense to re-look at how we're eating, what we're eating, quantity, uh, and so, so much more. So, uh, Bill has had private clinical practice. He actually founded Deeks, a gluten-free bakery that I remember finding in the infancy of my need to medically remove gluten from my diet uh, nearly 20 years ago now. And uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'll be able to have a piece of toast every now and then. I was so excited. Um, but he has done so much more. He's had 35 years of clinical hypnotherapy practice, other mind therapies, 50 years of teaching yoga, uh, so much more, 45 years focus on Chinese medicine. So he's really not someone that, uh, stops l- to look at the way we need to heal people through any one lens. He's one of those practitioners who's just continued to add layers onto their expertise to support more and more people. And he was one of the first people to pioneer grain-free diets, uh, in the early nineties, 
So he's a fascinating man to talk to. And it was one of those interviews where I ended up with more questions than when I started. And I kept asking them and I was like, okay, we've been going for an hour and a half now. Uh, so you might need to chunk this up into two listens. I get that. Um, but I have convinced him to come back for a live webinar Q&A with our Lotox Club members. So if that's not something you've joined yet, if it's something you've been hankering for, a place, a safe space away from trolls that you often find in free groups on the internet, it's a very low cost membership, $49 a year Australian. So in US, that's like 30, 35 bucks. Uh, in Australian, it's 49 uh, and for that, you get a, a monthly Q&A or a class or some sort of deep dive into various areas of leading a low-tox life. So we've done everything from PMT um, masterclasses with great naturopaths like Jules Galloway, Naomi Judge. We've done um, growing veggies and how to get motivated with the gorgeous Robin, founder of Pip Magazine. Uh, I've done some classes to motivate our members in various aspects and, uh, and we've had thyroid Q and A's, so many different things. So it's all there for you. Even all the stuff we've already done over the last three years in the dashboard when you become a member, but of course you'll then get all the things to come in the next year. So I've popped the link to the joining the Lotox club in the show notes. Uh, if you fancy joining along, uh, because I think this masterclass is going to be really special. Uh, for example, something that I'm looking forward to asking Bill for clarification on is around um, the aspect of being grain free and perhaps including animal products because um, protein and fat don't modulate um, or don't affect the brain in terms of the immune function. I want more clarity on uh, what that means if it's absolutely um, true because thinking about the amino acids in proteins, for example, and then being able to modulate um, mood, sleep, uh, does that not then influence the immune system? So I want to learn a little bit more about that from the uh, body of work that he's produced over the last 45 years. Um, and I know our members are going to have a ton of other questions when it comes to, which is really the theme of today, this idea of exploring how we find our own signature diet. And he talks about how some people are perfect vegetarians and it just really works for them. Other people are practically on the other end of that and carnivorous or keto for long periods of time. And that seems to work for them. And the idea that, um, he, he says, you know, you always want to be scared of, or, or back away from join the club diets when you're trying to figure out what that is for you. It's better to go in with curiosity, trepidation, and a really good inner, uh, understanding of yourself, really good self-awareness and building that up. So tons of advice, lots of biology and some really fantastic nuggets that I know you guys are going to enjoy today. So I'll hook in to that chat in just a little minute. I want to remind you, of course, that we have the wonderful uh, major sponsor this year, Oz Climate. Uh, they have a fantastic range of air purifiers and dehumidifiers. The dehumidifiers are slowly coming back in stock. If you're listening live, it's looking like they'll be fully back in stock towards mid to the end of July, which is awesome. Uh, especially given as I'm recording this, we are headed for more rain over the coming days in Sydney. Uh, and a dehumidifier is one of the best, best, best things you can do to keep the indoor air humidity down and keep mold at bay. 
But what I really want to focus on quickly is the air filters that they have. It's the Winix air purifiers. They have different units that have different capacity. So the five stage is going to be an incredible advanced filtration system if you have someone with allergies like dust mite allergies maybe or mold allergies and you really need to keep that air pure or maybe you live in a regional area where there is spraying done agriculturally around you and you really want to make sure you've got the best of the best Uh, then you would go for that type of unit. But if you're just an inner city dweller, no major health problems that you want to keep that cooking VOC level down, the carbon dioxide level down, and you want to make sure that you're filtering out everyday contaminants from the air, then even having what we have, the little compact four-stage Winix air purifiers in our two bedrooms, excuse me, Um, I find that to be a fantastic, uh, it's perfect for us. I've monitored our indoor air quality and it's really, really good by using just those two bedroom units and making sure we get plenty of um, airflow in our living and kitchen spaces. So you'll find what works for you. The best thing about Oz Climate is they actually let you give them a buzz and talk through your floor plan, your geographic location, and help you figure out what the best unit is going to be for you and your personal situation. And so when you think about smoke, dust, pets, viruses, bacteria, household odors, allergies, all the things that we could do with improving in our indoor airspaces, given we spend so much time indoors, well, most of us do, then an air purifier really is one of those appliances that can help you move the needle health-wise and help act as a preventative tool in your health uh, so that you don't become burdened by a toxic load over time. So you have 10% off all year round, ozclimate.com.au. And on their website, you can grab their phone number and give them a call if you need to chat specifics. Now, our other major sponsor this month, just for this month, is Nordic Naturals. And I'm focusing specifically on the Arctic cod liver oil. Arctic cod liver oil has a really fantastic dose of omega-3s and I wanted to have a look at some of the research uh, around why this might be a good daily supplement to bring into your life or your family's life, your kid's life. Uh, And I, I found a couple, one very topical to the times we're living in and one more situational around learning and brain development for kids. But Check out this study. Uh, This was, I found this in PubMed. I'll put the two links to these studies in the show notes. I know you guys are as nerdy as me and you like details and facts. Um, So I thought this would be much more interesting than um, just talking about how much I love Nordic Naturals. It's the brand we use. We have the uh, Arctic D cod liver oil because I really like the fact that it's got the vitamin D in there, something we need to protect our immune systems, support healthy immune systems, uh, as well as with all the rain we've had in uh, on the East Coast this year, we are not getting the same levels of sunshine we get. Even if we go out and get fresh air every day, it's still not equating to the amount of vitamin D we'd naturally be getting living somewhere like Sydney. So I like that daily insurance policy on my vitamin D. 
And uh, if you want, you can check your uh, blood levels with your GP. Sometimes they make you pay privately to do that. It depends. Uh, But I think it's a really important thing to know about yourself, your vitamin D levels. Um, And uh, we've seen that the UK government has advocated for um, people in the UK supplementing with vitamin D over the um, pandemic as well, which has been fantastic to see some leadership somewhere in the world uh, acting in a preventative suggestion. I think that's really positive. Um, We have to praise where it's due, right? So anyway, this was specific to long COVID, this study, and uh, the psychoneuroimmunity implications of omega-3 LCFAs, and that's long-chain fatty acids, in a delayed consequences of COVID-19. So we know that there are about half a million people just in Australia experiencing varying degrees of long COVID now um, with half of our population having had it. And long COVID can manifest as many different uh, symptoms, some really intense and some a little bit more mild, a bit of brain fog, Uh, maybe your sense of smell and taste hasn't fully come back. And those tend to be because there is still a degree of neuroinflammation. So the study basically goes to have a look at how COVID has caused long-term tissue damages from direct CNS, so central nervous system viral involvement, unresolved systemic inflammation, oxidative stress, maladaptation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone syndrome and coagulation system, sorry, aldosterone system and coagulation system, dysregulated immunity, dysfunction of neurotransmitters in the HPA axis, so that's the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis, and psychosocial stress imposed by the societal changes in response to the pandemic. So our our bodies are are undergoing a lot. Our biology is like, whoa, dude, this is really hard. And that is a completely normal response to completely abnormal events. Uh, And so long-chain omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, so omega-3 or N3 PUFAs, might have favourable effect on immunity, inflammation, oxidative stress and psychoneuroimmunity at different stages of SARS-CoV-2 infection and beyond. So looking at it being a promising strategy of including in the toolkit for long covid uh, I'll let you have a look at the rest of the study yourself, but the the research is really promising. And actually, you'll remember perhaps that I had Dr. Elisa Song, a good friend of mine, on the show just after the pandemic broke out. And uh, she advocates after COVID for taking really good dose. And this is something you can chat to your local health shop about, or if you have a practitioner, chat to them about dosage based on your weight, your um, severity of symptoms. It might, it might differ. Um, but this is something she advocates for using at least a month during and after having uh, COVID-19. So, um, Really, really exciting stuff. Such an easy thing to include. Arctic decod liver oil from Nordic Naturals includes a really good healthy dose. And uh, I think it's worth a try if you're 
someone who is feeling like um, you might you might need a little a, a few more tools in the kit. Let's say this is not medical advice. I'm just presenting the research. I think it's really positive. And it's such a fantastic accessible thing that we can bring into the mix. Breaks my heart when I see doctors on Twitter saying, it's horrible how we have no tools to deal with this. I'm like, would you like to partner with a naturopathic physician or an integrative GP? Because they've got tools and research and they're using it. Um, You guys know me. This is not a, I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. I hate polarization. I really think anywhere where we can start to find common ground and start to understand what's being used out there, what's working, that's how we move forward uh, peacefully and with love rather than uh, with anger in our hearts and being upset at the whole world, you know. Um, So... I always think great health professionals are going to be completely fine with you sharing a piece of uh, evidence like this if you're struggling and saying, Doc, here's the research, you know, how much do you think we should try and how much do you think I could go up to and um, and maybe they'll research it some more for you. I know there are some amazing doctors out there who are very patient-led, especially when you bring them really good studies like this one. So it's in the show notes for you. Another study that I had a look at and I'll include in the show notes, I don't want to blab on too much more before this fantastic interview today, but it was actually around high-dose EPA improving attention and vigilance in children and adolescents with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and low endogenous EPA levels. So for the parents out there, maybe it's even you who feel like your concentration sucks, you start daydreaming, um, you start multitasking and then you don't know where you are and you have a bout of being overwhelmed or you're seeing this in your child. This study is specifically focused on six to 18 year olds. Uh, There is some fantastic uh, research on adding EPA to your uh, routine of uh, the day uh, at breakfast, perhaps. And um, EPA, DHA is also, of course, very brain and heart protective. So the Arctic D cod liver oil has both. And as I said, we love the Arctic D because it's got the D in it as well. You have the option to have that in there or not. There are different flavors, yada, yada. It's a fabulous product. And if you want to find Nordic Naturals near you, you don't often have to go much further than your local health shop or a really good online health store uh, to grab it and see whether it might help you guys. So that's it uh, from me around um, little special offers, brand highlights, yada, yada. Uh, I think it's now time to explore the fascinating work of Bill Giles, his new book, and how we might all find a way of eating that suits us uniquely. Enjoy. Hello, Bill. How are you? Oh, hi, Alex. Look, I'm really great and I'm really pleased to um, to talk to you about diets and foods today. I'm so excited. Uh, you've been at this for a very long time, Bill, uh, and I think when we get the opportunity to speak to people who have been in practice for more than three decades, there's a lot we can learn from what you've learned simply seeing people and observing as well as uh, treating and supporting. So I appreciate you coming on the show. I'd love to ask, as I was digging around at your background, your initial fields of study were very 
uh, linear black and white science. And then there must have been something, right, that made you think there's a whole lot more going on because you then went on to study holistic health, uh, esoteric arts, thinking, uh, you know, quantum biology, all sorts of things in, in the list as I went on. What Can you take us through your evolution as a human wanting to do good work on the planet and what, what made you start to expand your thinking on how to do better by the world and people in it? Okay, thanks, Alex. Uh, look, it has to go back to when I finished high school. I did five years of engineering. Didn't I wasn't set up to be an engineer. Uh, as soon as that was complete, I did another seven years of biology. But at the same time, what drew me into the biology was I joined the Rosicrucians. I spent 21 years in the Rosicrucians. And a year after that, in 1972, I started yoga. Now, all of that pushed me away from a, being the engineer mentality uh, of looking at the world to having a, a broader and a softer approach to the world. And the biology was something that uh, balanced all the metaphysical studies that were occurring in the Rosicrucians. I wanted to answer those questions with science. So eventually I had postgraduate degrees from University of Queensland and, and the ANU. And, and, and so I could rigorously look at questions. I was taught how to do that, as well as having the logic of an engineer. Um, I transited into clinic work because I didn't agree with what some of my colleagues were at the John Curtin School of Medical Research, where the last job that I had, which was with an institution, um, their orientation appeared to me to be more for just <sighs> getting drugs or creating drugs and patenting the drugs and having some aspect of uh, some money to retire on, something like that it was. And I wasn't happy with what was going on. I had a few problems uh, with my health at that time. And the advice was just chemical advice and being a biologist and, 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 uh, and my focus was immunobiology by that stage. I knew there was more to it. And there's several things that came into that. So then I thought, well, I'm not trained as a practitioner, but I had started to discuss how the immune system worked with various people who had autoimmune diseases, for example. And I was able to help these people to varying degrees. So I thought, well, okay, I'll do a transition. I'll get out of the research, uh, finish off another degree that I was doing. And then I set up a little clinic with uh, a really good friend of mine, Kit Lachlan, and it was called the Shoshin Center in, in Canberra. And it started from there. And I specialized more with my immunobiology background and Kit went and, and did his posture and flexibility and set up a really good industry around that. So. To, to summarize that, I, I felt that from my training and the research that I was in, that the body has a blueprint. Um, and if you allow the body to work in a certain way, this blueprint will allow you good health to the potential longevity of your genes. As you get older and you move into what's called immune senescence, of course, then you'll have to take more care of the body. Now, our potential longevity in, in, in biology is about 100 to 108. That's in our genes. So that's our potential longevity, not the average. The average person in the world, the average male in the world, um, 
um, dies at around 80 years of age and the average woman about 82, uh, particularly in Australia that is. And why would they die at 80 and not at 100 years of age? Well, many factors, but some of those factors are the way they live their lives against their immune system. Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, so against their immune system. And do you, in your study, have you found that that immune system is different than based on genetics and that's why we need to learn more about ourselves? Well, yes. The thing is you've got static cells and then you've got some mobile cells in the body. Your mobile cells are your immune cells. That's eliminating metastasized cancer cells. Okay, so this immune system supplies nutrition, oxygen, or helps with the nutrition supply, oxygen, carbon dioxide transfer, that's all red blood cells. Um, And so the red blood cells are servants to the rest of your static cells, trying to keep those cells as healthy as possible and to live as long as possible. Then you have the two white blood cells of the immune system, your innate and your adaptive immune system. Now, when you put the whole, and, and there to defend the body, against chemicals that shouldn't be in the body to bind these chemicals up, to shift them to direct ways to remove these chemicals, and then bugs, okay, viruses, uh, parasites, fungi, bacteria, so that you can protect these cells. So the immune system is doing this job. Now, and our genes are set up around, partly around that. Your innate immune system and mine are pretty well the same. It takes hundreds, maybe, I have read some papers where they suggest maybe 100,000 years for the innate immune system to code to, to complex pathogens. And, um, and your adaptive immune system, of course, at birth has no coding and develops its coding through life, peaks at about the age of 14 to 35, then goes into senescence and drops down again. So we've got this system in our body, which is just trying to keep all the cells as healthy as they can, protect the cells, and then allow the cells to actually um, exist in a community which we'll call organs. And the genetic makeup has, for longevity of humans, was set when Homo sapiens occurred around about 315,000 years ago, not 1,000 years ago, not 10,000 years ago. So, So our longevity was set then, and the longevity goes with the potential of good health, not ill health good health and so the thing is if i thought decades ago that if this is what they were teaching in biology and i followed along with this then the immune system seems to be the key to trying to keep all of these healthy and try and keep the organs functioning against all of the dynamic nature that we live in yeah every day every day um, it's quite a um, lovely notion, isn't it, to really connect with the idea that our body is rooting for us 24-7 and to remember that. Well, <laughs> well, Alex, yes. Um, you know, when, when somebody starts to get really sick and they may die, they go into a coma, okay, and then the body repairs because the person is not conscious. So that gets rid of one problem, <laughs> conscious problem of trying to deal consciously with with things, but if you do it in a negative way, your autonomic nervous system responds badly and down your health goes. The other thing is you start to create stability. You see, we have changes all the time in our body. Um, we've got, <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking about this this morning, I'm wondering whether to talk to you about it, but 
you know, the delays around food, for example, because we'll, we'll talk about food, but the delays that you can have, say in a type three, type four allergy are up to 10 days after you eat the particular food. And these are plants. Um, and very few people remember from one week to the next, the influence that a particular food had. Say on Saturday night, they go out for a meal, but they don't get the symptoms till next Thursday or Friday. Well, most people have forgotten about that meal on the weekend by then. There's these long delays that occur in foods. And then there's our, the um, microbiome, the, the, the variety of say bacteria in our colon, which create these toxins and these psychotrophic drugs that affect our brain. Um, they also can shift over a period of days, not, well, sometimes weeks as well. So we have those influences occurring all the time. We have environmental influences when cloud covers come over or temperatures change, our body responds to these. And then we have the seasonal influences where the immune system tries to alter the bacteria in our colon from summer to autumn to winter um, to spring each year. It's trying to alter it. And so what I'm suggesting here is that we've got many factors all the time that are creating chaos within our body, but our immune system always tries to, um, to, to um, remove that chaos and make things a little bit more predictable for us. We can make that more predictable through a lifestyle ourselves, or we can make it more chaotic for the immune system if we, if we wish to. Mm, interesting. So you mentioned plants there uh, as if that was one of the more uh, powerfully modulating, either way, negative or positive. Uh, was that at the exclusion of, uh, uh, say, proteins and, and fats, which tend to be less so? Is that what you're saying? Well, if you, if you just looked, we, we, we'll compartmentalise this. If you... And, and remove the nutrition side of it, the fats, protein, carbohydrates. If we just look at toxicity, toxicity, um, the animal products that you have, uh, you know, if you're going to eat steaks or, or um, fish uh, or whatever, anything yep. from an animal like that, the fat and the protein, they don't intentionally have any toxins in those tissues. So our body doesn't have to detoxify those. All plants on this planet, if you, do, if you do botany, all plants on this planet, in the sea and on the land, have proteins and glycoproteins to defend the bodies, to, de to, de to defend the plants, to communicate, and to have storage chemicals. Now, these are, uh, you might as well say they're all toxic to a degree. Animals, no, start with a premise, which would be, that no life form wants to die before it's time. Mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. Okay, so then let's look at animals. You, you take something like a gazelle. It's genetically adapted on these very spindly legs to get away from a lion when the lion tries to capture it and eat it. So it bounces this way and that. Okay, so it's got movement. Other animals come together and they will do social defense against a predator like humans do, uh, like some buffalo will do, etc. But when you look at plants, they can't up their roots and run away. So they've got to defend themselves against, well, if you're looking at microorganisms, virus, bacteria, fungi, insects that want to eat them, um, and then bigger animals, and also aggression by plants on plants. Now, because they don't move, then they can use spines and woody tissue, like in trees. But 
the vast majority of plants use toxins to protect themselves. Now, if, if you as an animal or me as an animal um, is eating a particular plant and we can't denature those toxins, we'll either get sick or die. So the foods that we eat that are potentially toxic are your vegetables and salads and grains and nuts and fruits and things. So you put that onto one side. That's if you want to look at toxins. If you just want to look at um, uh, macronutrition, then you go, well, fats and proteins, we can have them raw and sugars, we can start having them raw. Um, our body will accommodate those. Um, micronutrition, uh, it depends what you eat of it as an animal that will give you micronutrition. And it depends what you eat as a plant that will give you micronutrition. So you can start dividing up these particular foods in particular ways. The thing that I've noticed over the years that um, plants do create problems for people more so than fat and protein when it comes to uh, the immune system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then, okay, so I'm interested to know, and I'm just putting it out, it's a thought that just came into my head, so I'm going to share it. Plants also, if you think about, say, legumes or cruciferous veggies that help feed our gut bugs in very positive ways, can we, and which then, of course, because serotonin, the bulk of that is in the gut, uh, the bulk of our immune system is in the gut, do some plants or ways of plant eating not bolster the very functions that we're trying to protect as well? And is, is the key to actually finding a way to harness the best of things and reduce the toxicity in things? Mm, yes, well said. Um, firstly, yeah, I'm, I'm trained in herbal medicine mm -hmm. and plants as medicines are fabulous. Mm. We don't get that from animals. Uh, even, even in the Chinese concept, Chinese medicine, um, what they're suggesting, I, I don't believe works as well as plants as medicines. Okay, but... The medicinal value of plants is also toxic. You have to be very, very careful about the dosage that you get. This is true. You can't, you can't eat. You don't want to go nuts on your milk thistle extract. <laughs> Instead <laughs> of supporting you your liver, you probably actually start to damage it. Hmm. Yeah, that, well, that's correct. So that's, that's the first thing. But if we had a look at our gastrointestinal tract, because that's what you're talking about, um, we are an animal that's been cooking food. We're the only animal on the planet that cooks our food. We've been cooking for maybe probably nearly 2 million years, Homo erectus all the way through. And, and, and we cook, when we cook plants, we denature the toxins in plants and that, that creates one, removes one problem. And then on the other hand, when we cook plants, for example, we ease up their digestion, we break down the starches and we can uptake um, into the small intestine more um, of, uh, well... Of the nutrient benefits. Yeah. Well, the nutrient benefits, which is sugars then, and, and maybe what's locked up with the sugars, the vitamins and minerals, et cetera. So fire. So our gastrointestinal tract has adapted to fire, okay? It's, it's one of those things. And um, we can go over that a little bit later on. But when you look at our gastrointestinal tract, there are five organs that are genetically... We, we've driven in a particular direction... Uh, there's five organs that help with the digestion of fat. There's four with the digestion of protein, and there's two with the digestion of plants. There's been genetic pressure for humans to eat 
um, fats, more fats and then fats and protein, more than plants. And and then you say, well, okay. When, sorry, I just, I need to stop there because I'm, I'm always with a beginner's mind and people might be coming across this as their first foray into looking into nutrition. Um, so is what you're saying there, we are genetically um, coded to look for the fat because we have the most amount of tools to utilise it? Yes. Uh -huh. Yes, that's what I'm saying. If you go back six million years, our ancestor, a small primate, was was a vegetarian. But if you if you look at the evolutionary biology over four to five million years, we transited to being an upright animal that that went from uh, eating plants in various trees. This is on the uh, where the savanna occurred in Africa. This is the the belief that has occurred, and um, we moved away to become a scavenger and then eventually a hunter and our brain developed to become a huge brain, a huge brain that works socially. To develop a large brain, this is one of those evolutionary biology arguments, to, to develop a large brain, you need to have a high energy foods over three to four million years. That means every month or every week, or you have to have a constant supply of high energy foods to allow this brain to grow. And then you have the pressure to make the brain grow. So when you look at a herbivore, Herbivores have got a little brain, then carnivores are a bit bigger brain, then primates for their body size are bigger, then humans have got this enormous brain. So your two high energy foods only occur in nature. One of them is free sugars or simple sugars, like glucose, galactose, um, uh, fructose. And then you've got free fatty acids, fat. They're the two high energy foods in nature. So when you look at the evolution, when biologists look at the evolution of the growth of the brain, they'll turn around and go, well, there's the, the two free sugars are honey and fruit in nature. And if you eat a bowl of honey, you'll probably die. It's too toxic. So you can't have a bowl of honey four times a week for three million years. There's just not enough honey around, right? It just won't work. So they push that away and they go fruit. But there's a problem because Africa is not a country that has high volumes of fruit. It's a if you've been to East Africa where humans evolved over that time, it's a little bit like uh, outback New South Wales with patches where you have, you know, um, from the savanna areas, you, you have the, the um, gorge areas and you have the highland areas. So it's variable, but the vast majority of is more savanna. Okay, so there's not enough fruit. Now you go out in the Australian bush, now, Australia and Africa were once joined in Gondwana land. So it's very similar in, in so many ways. But if you go into the Australian bush, there's only about 16 fruits Aboriginal Australians ever ate. And these were as condiments, never as meals. And, and so it is doubtful that we were eating a bowl of fruit or the equivalent of a bowl of fruit three, four, five times a week for millions of years. So then you go to the other side of the argument, you go, well, what about free fatty acid, mid-chain free fatty acids that call, occur in small animals, not in the really large animals like elephants, but in the small animals. Well, there's plenty of animals in Africa, small animals. There's plenty of animals in Australia. Okay, so the inclination was that humans then hunted smaller animals. And so our for our brain to develop then, we needed to have more and more of the fat from small animals. So our brain developed on fats, not on sugar as, as a food source. Okay, so, and, and then our gastrointestinal tract 
change around that. Our teeth and our, our, our whole mouth changed around the fire and eating those foods. Now, that's a biology argument. One of the arguments that they put forward to say that humans have evolved to eat fat and protein. Now, if that's the case, let, let's, let's just follow that through. It may not be so. Some people can argue against that, and I've got no problems with that. But if we followed this through and had a look at what happens when you eat meat and fat, for example, it's pre-digested in the stomach. Vegetables aren't digested in the stomach. Okay, you understand that. Then, then it's got to go down into the small intestine. The pancreas produces a series of enzymes and the liver through the bile to actually digest the fat protein, which is pre-digested in the stomach. Then up to 90, maybe even 95% of all the fat and protein goes into your small intestine and almost nothing goes down to your colon. Oh, my gosh. So uh, this might shock a lot of people hearing this for the first time because anyone who has perhaps gotten their information from popular books or popular uh, people on Instagram, let's say, have heard the phrase meat rots in your colon. What, <laughs> they have. And people legitimately believe it to be a very damaging food when it comes to colon cancer. I agree. Um, it, it is very damaging. The colon so let's unpack that then so that we, yeah. we get the whole picture. Right. Okay. So let, let's continue from there. And, and, and thank you for that, Alex, um, to keep me on track. And um, <laughs> Well, you've got, you know, decades of knowledge, Bill. I need to, we need to box it in and make it, um, you know, able for people to really get their head around something because often we end up with more questions than when we started and we don't want that. Okay. Mm. Yes. If our stomach is, is pretty good and we pre-digest fat and protein, and 90, 95% goes into our body through the small intestine. Only a bit of gristle goes down to the colon. And essentially, the colon is not passing any foods if you are only eating meat and fat. If you're eating carbohydrates, like in your plants, we can't digest starches. And you can uptake 65, maybe 70% of the um, sugar, the carbohydrates, into your small intestine, but the rest goes to the colon. That can create a problem for the colon. Um, so I'll put that on one side and I'll come back to it. So when we look at our colon from the perspective of hunter-gatherers, if it was true that hunter-gatherers primarily ate meat and fat seven days a week and had condiments of vegetables when they came across them just to add to taste, etc., to the meals, um, and they had those seasonally, then the colon is not in humans, the colon is not an organ primarily to pass um, products through. Uh, a bit like with a cow as a herbivore, it has three appendices with bacteria in it to break down the grasses, then it has one stomach. Or you look at a horse, a horse in its colon is full of bacteria to break down the grass that it's eating. Okay, so its primary job, the colon, the primary job in a horse is to break down the um, uh, using bacteria to break down uh, the grass, um, not so much the stomach. Okay, so if that's correct, that one of the primary things, uh, if, the, if the colon is not set up to pass products through, it is set up then to house bacteria in the colon. Okay, so when you look at a hunter-gatherer's stool, 
the stool might be 90% or even more in some cases, dead bacteria. But when somebody's um, eating a normal meal of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, the stool is much bigger. And when you look at the stool, it can be 50% bacteria and 50% carbohydrates, or even 60 or 65% um, starches, carbohydrates, and the rest bacteria, depending on how many bowel movements they're having, how much they're eating to pass through. So that would be a secondary effect is passing food through the colon. So then you turn around and say, well, why would you have bacteria in the colon? Well, the bacteria are there to produce your vitamin K2, your B12, B6, biotin, etc., and your psychotrophic drugs that the bacteria in the colon create for our brain, which travels through the parasympathetic nervous system to our brain and makes us feel human um, with change of season. Now, well, if there's no carbohydrates going to the colon, how do the bacteria live? Well, on the brush border of the colon, the immune system directs glucose for certain bacteria. Now, in every, every healthy person's colon, we have between 300 and maybe up to 450 types of bacteria, the microbiome of the colon. And during the different seasons, in summer, the immune system would want these bacteria to produce their complement of uh, micronutrition plus psychotrophic drugs and then in autumn another group and then in winter another group and then another group and if if there's nothing passing through the colon that then the immune system um, is able to regulate the bacteria of the colon really efficiently as soon as products start passing through that are undigested products like your starches then it can disrupt the actual flora for the season that the immune system wants. And that can create changes in the psychotropic drugs for our brains. And then we'll start to go to feel not well in various seasons. For example, in winter, um, one of the effects is that if the colon is out in its flora, you won't be able to feel as well as you should in spring or summer. Um, and then you've got the other factors of vitamin D, etc., which come into it. Okay. So, um, the whether you should whether you should eat a a plant oh let, here's one thing i was going to say if the stomach goes down and it's there to process fat and protein and it's not efficient at doing that as the fat and protein goes to the small intestine not all of it will be able to be uptaken into the body and some will transit to the colon now our colon is not set up for fat and protein. It disrupts the flora. And, and there is really good evidence to suggest that when people do have stomach problems and, the, and they're eating a high meat fat diet, they can move towards cancer of the colon, various cancers in the colon. Got it. So it's not so much the idea that, you know, m meat rots in the colon. That's not actually an accurate <laughs> statement. It's no a much broader, more complex, as everything is, people. Yes. We are not in a black and white world. There are factors always. And so the factors, therefore, are around um, the, the performance of your stomach, so acid and, and then bile, yes. bile presumably as well, yes. um, in terms of whether or not that then becomes a problem for you. Yes, yes. And, and, and in so many ways you could turn around and say, well, if the meat and fat ever get to the colon, 
Okay, then it's pretty rotten. You could think that. And you can have a look at your stools. If there's too much fat going through, your stools float. That's all. And then you go, okay, the floating stools, I don't want them to float. Things are getting past here. Now, if you've got a stomach problem um, and you're not able to digest meat and fat, you're better to become a vegetarian. Okay, and then use the pancreas and the brush board of the small intestine principally um, to actually be healthier. And that's what happens with a lot of people um, who are having all sorts of problems, bowel problems uh, and health problems. And they become vegetarians and they go, it's really made me healthy. Exactly, it has. And then you get other people who turn around and say, no, I've become a carnivore and I'm much healthier with carnivore. One of those is a problem that happens around the gut. And the other one is an immune problem. Um, one of the things that um, uh, I wrote in my book, and I think I said to you is that this saying that as we age, foods don't change, but our body does. And it changes in two ways. One way it changes in the functioning of our gastrointestinal tract. And in the other way, it changes around foods and immune responses to foods. Okay, and if your if your digestive tract goes down, you you may be better to become a vegetarian, or you may be better to become more of a carnivore. There's arguments for both. They're unnatural diets, um, rather than having the junk foods in the middle. And if your immune system goes down, it's probably best to try and figure out which of the foods you're putting into your body that are creating a problem, a toxic problem to the immune system, and just eliminate those ones. And as you do that, you move more towards paleo um, and and the um, carnivore type of diets. Mm -hmm. And but, and so, but you also just said that it's unhealthy to go either side of the polar spectrum just then. So is that like, should we also really be doing work to figure out what's not optimal in our digestive function so that we can eat at the very least, a paleo diet where there are veggies and fats and proteins involved? Okay, yeah, great question because it brings lots of things into my mind about this. We've got a spectrum of foods that humans can eat, right? Mm -hmm. We can eat yeah. fats, protein, carbohydrate. Down one end of the spectrum on the extreme end is fats and protein, um, ketone diet, keto diet, if you like. And down on the other end, we just have a pure vegetarian diet. Now, I suggest that both of those are unnatural um, in that our ancestors didn't just have a vegetarian diet and they just didn't have a keto diet. And if you um, and that's reasonably well documented. And I've experienced that when 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 I went for three years to live with traditional Aboriginal people in the 70s, when I postponed my PhD and helped my ex-wife do her PhD in cross-cultural psychology. Oh, wow. Questioning and Aboriginal children. So we lived in, you know, in, in these amazing conditions for a long time, over a three-year period. Um, so it, it's my opinion then that hunter-gatherers like Australian Aborigines, like Eskimos, like the, the ancestors in Africa, had principally a meat-fat diet, and then with seasonal condiments, when they came across something, they would add that in. I experienced that myself. Okay, so keto diet is unnatural in that it doesn't have any plants, a true keto diet, 100%, not a nutritional keto diet where you try and add some plants in, which is more like a hunter-gatherer diet. Um, vegetarian diet um, is fine for some people, but it's unnatural in that our body has been set up to eat meat and fat. 
And psychologically, it's sometimes difficult um, for people to be to stay vegetarians in time. And psychologically, it's sometimes difficult for people who are on a keto diet to stay full keto It just can't be done. And, and then they can create problems for themselves by trying to come back to the middle. Well, and isn't this where the psychological, ideological aspects of joining various food tribes can be harmful because of the there's a mental health component there as well. I, I've seen either keto bloggers or vegan bloggers, for that matter, then have to share this massive confession post uh, where it turns out they're actually going to have to change their diet and people hate on them. They, you, they, you see the comment sections and you think, how awful. It's like someone's being burned at the stake for um, listening to their own body, either way of that um, polar extreme. And I feel like, um, I, I mean, I know this discussion isn't meant to be a philosophical one by any means, but at the same time, I feel like it's feeding into this energy of polarisation in general. You pick your camp, you dig your heels in even deeper if someone suggests you should do something else or think more um, flexibly, whether it's politics, whether it's diets, you know, now it's uh, exercise as well. Um, it's, it, it's really interesting to me that uh, science and the complexity of science, and I really appreciate your uh you're keeping this complex and all the layers that you're sharing because it just illustrates to me again that we try to play in the black and whites inevitably we set ourselves up for failure yes look that people define themselves and align with groups and define themselves you can see it everywhere you can see it through the COVID. what's happened in the last couple two and a half years um a lot of people don't have any uh, with their lifestyles, not a, enough depth of knowledge around something like foods, and they will follow their friends and their family um, and align with people that they like. And if it satisfies some beliefs that have, have given them um, some satisfaction in life, they'll keep following that. The thing is, a generalization is that if you follow a join the club diet, eventually you're not going to be all that well. That's that's something that I've found over my career. So mostly when in a clinical situation, when people come in, they tell me about the diets they're on, such and such. There's 10,000 diets out there. People just make up these diets because it suits themselves. Um, sometimes it suits themselves. Sometimes they see these results in people. But the human body is so complex, people are so complex, that if you want really good health, when your buffer leaves you as you get older, you're best not having a join the club diet, you're best going down for a signature diet. And I would also suggest that do not have a balanced diet as you get older. Try never to have a balanced diet, which is the five food groups. Mm. That's a selling campaign by supermarkets since the mid 60s yeah. in, in Australia. <laughs> you cannot have a balanced diet unless you A balanced diet is an ultra processed food funded dietary association diet. <laughs> That's mm. exactly right. And people don't realize that it is a selling campaign by big organizations. And um, before you had supermarkets, you only had seasonal plants. For example, the fruiting season in Australia is October to February. Then fruit doesn't occur unless you brought in mandarins and oranges from overseas. And, and potatoes don't grow all year round and pumpkins don't, carrots don't. So you've got all of these 
uh, seasonal effects. But when you have a supermarket, you can supply the five food groups week in, week out, all year round, and that will make people ill eventually. There's, there's, a, there's so much going on inside the body that these things create a problem for the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. So you've used the term signature diet there. I, I like that. Um, is that based on us exploring with this? Uh, oh, you used a word... And I wanted to ask you exactly what it meant. Um, senescence or something like that earlier? Yes. Um, as you, the immune system changes in time in every person. And if you, your innate immune system is supposed to stay stable throughout the whole of your life. That's the first line of defense. If you get a cut, your neutrophils are right there on the spot, putting these webs over bacteria, et cetera. Um, but your innate immune system at birth has no coding, maybe a little bit of coding coming through the placenta, but essentially at birth, it's got no coding against bugs or chemicals. And when the baby feeds on the placenta, when the baby feeds on the colostrum, um, if mum has been living outside a particular environment and her adaptive immune system has been targeting particular bugs and chemicals up to six weeks before birth, this is deposited mostly in the um, colostrum. Then the baby feeds on that. And within 24 hours, its adaptive immune system will increase from virtually no knowledge of bugs and chemicals to improve and keep increasing and building a library of these particular chemicals and bugs that the innate immune system cannot identify. So the innate immune system is genetically set up over 100,000 years to look at particular bugs and chemicals. And if we live completely within the environment with those, it would take care of everything. But because we move around and there's lots of, lots of other things that come in, we have an adaptive immune system like, like, like other um, um, vertebrates, an adaptive immune system which grows from birth with information about new bugs and chemicals. And then from the age of 14 to 35, it's pretty stable and very strong. And that's when you're bulletproof between your teenage years up to 35. Now from 35 onwards, sometimes with people up around 40, but from 35 onwards, it's starting to go down in its competency. It gets slower at identifying things. It has more memory cells rather than more adapting cells. Um, and this is called immune senescence. Now it's a bit like, it's a bit like a uh, 70 year old man trying to, uh, uh, move concrete or pour concrete with a 20 year old man the 70 year old man can do it but it will take much longer okay so as you get older your adaptive immune system you have to take care of it you could drink lots of alcohol when you're 20 well when you're 70 you don't or when you're 60 or 50 you find you have problems with it so that's immune senescence and it's going down and tapering off as you get older but you should still have really good health up to 100 years of age and it should function without scarring. So there is immune scarring that occurs. Um, for example, with celiac disease, autoimmune disease and cancer. Oh, well, cancer is different. That's immune um, exhaustion. But immune scarring is a term that's used that says the immune system is losing its communication ability between immune cells or between immune cells and body cells or identifying bugs or identifying chemicals correctly. So you might get an allergy to peanuts, 
The peanut is not a bug, it's a chemical, and the immune system has created a mimicry response or a cross-reactivity response. It is not identifying the proteins, the defense proteins or the storage proteins in the peanut and inappropriately responds. That's a scar. You see it in celiac disease. A person might have the HLA genes for celiac disease um, from when they're born, but they eat gluten all the way up to the age of 30 with no problems. Then they have a big emotional upset in the family. And after that, when they're tired and when they're a little bit um, upset over something else, or they got a low grade infection or they've taken in some toxins, the immune system, they start developing these problems around their gut and they start getting loose stools and all sorts of gripes and pains and things. And when they're really healthy and they're rested, they don't get the pains. That's a micro scar that's occurred around their genes. That around. is fascinating. Oh my gosh. As someone who uh, developed non-celiac gluten sensitivity in my late twenties, uh, very interestingly had a very big breakup at, at 25. And that I think was when I started to notice I had digestive troubles also stopped the contraceptive pill at that age. Yeah. Well, see, that's around the autonomic nervous system. Mm. Which I'll, I'll talk about in a bit. Mm. Um, and it, and the autonomic- but then what's interesting when you said, uh, you know, stress event and then less stressed and sleep. So when I go on holidays, I thought it was a European thing, maybe an agriculture thing. And in part, it could be. There is less uh, less pre-harvest spraying in uh, most of European agriculture, so sure. Um, but I definitely don't have the same symptoms eating my croissant that I test my gluten sensitivity with in France. Well, well, we're, yes, well, that's right, because <laughs> you go through this stress, the autonomic nervous system doesn't direct particularly the adaptive immune system anymore. It starts to have problems with it. And so under these conditions, you get these symptoms. If you keep eating gluten, then eventually it goes to a full scar. And the immune system cannot cannot differentiate gluten from, say, the signature of a particular virus. And so you get this molecular mimicry response, which is just a mistake. And then it's there permanently. And for the rest of your life, the immune system is not going to be able to differentiate. So if you eat the gluten, then you're going to have a problem. The, the bug could be in your body and you can't get rid of it. It could be endemic to your body. So what you do is you pull the gluten out totally, 100%, so you don't even get three parts per million in a meal, and the immune system settles down perfectly, the villi grow back to being normal, and you get perfect health, as long as you keep this particular chemical. Now, you understand that gluten is a protein. It's got two peptides, one of them gliadin, has about 430 amino acid sequences, and a couple of those sequences trigger the molecular mimicry. And there's lots of other amino acid sequences that will trigger molecular mimicry, and this occurs in rice and corn, even though they don't have gluten. They're glutinous, they have agglutinins, they don't have gluten, but they've got similar structure in the immune system scars to those as well. So it, 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 it's a problem with grains. Grains are really interesting. Um, I've had so much to do with grains from the late 80s all the way through. And I did create the first world's first um, health bakery and totally grain free bakery products. And we've made over 100 of those particular products. This is the Deeks. Oh, yeah. I remember finding your products in the early part of my journey and was thrilled that I wasn't going to have to subsist 
whenever I did have a hankering for a piece of toast um, on the awful cardboard of 20 years ago, if you had to go gluten free. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, that was, that was all set up on this research that, that we mm. did in the 90s. Yeah. Interesting. So can we talk about grains for a minute, given so many people feel better both psychologically uh, and from an immune perspective when they remove grains from their diets? Mm, okay. Well, let's have a look at it from a biological perspective or botany perspective. Hard shell grass seeds are a whole family. They're all, all of this one family, rice, corn, wheat, rye, oats, millet, etc. And they're competing with soft shell grass seeds in particular areas of the world where it's near deserts, it goes from wet to dry. And for these hard shell grass seeds to compete successfully, they moved away from just uh, responding to the environment to starting to utilize animals to do their germination um, and then outcompete other seeds. So over a period of, I don't know how many millions of years, but it's, it, it, it goes back a fair way. These seeds developed a hard shell around them. Now, when they developed that hard shell, the only life forms that could get any nutrition out of these would be moles that sit on the grains and dissolve them. You can get certain insects with mandibles that grind them into a powder, then they can um, get some nutrition out of it. And birds with crops that would take them in, grind them up into a flower. No other animal on the planet could get any nutrition from hard shell grass seeds. So that was a really positive thing for the hard shell grass seeds in some ways, I suppose. <laughs> but um, but what happens was when an animal like a goat eats the, say, a wheat stalk, it gets nutrition out of it from the, the cellulose. And, and, and maybe if it ate the roots and could do okay, it could get, get, out of, get something out of it. But the seeds will pass right through the gastrointestinal tract. And they do that in every animal. You can do that yourself. Just get some whole rice or wheat or rye or any of those seeds and just take them in. They'll go straight through your body. That's what the evolutionary um, uh, impact of these on our, well, they've evolved to do that to outcompete these other grasses. Now, as they, as they go through, they will germinate in 100% moisture with a constant temperature over maybe 30 hours. Then they come out in the stool and they're ready and up they go in the stool and they can outcompete grasses. So that's what they're doing. But as they pass through the gastrointestinal tract of animals, they've got to be able to survive immune assault and all sorts of other problems that are in the gut of those animals. Now, immune assault can occur on these hard shell grass seeds. So what they, as these grass seeds are going through, they can create responses like a zonulin response. You understand a zonulin response? Yeah, zonulin is a, is a chemical, one of, one of several, that will open up the epithelial cells in the gut. The epithelial cells line the whole gastrointestinal tract, and normally food passes through these cells and bugs and chemicals inside the gut um, can't go into the body. But as zonulin is, is, the body wants to open, to get more glucose, for example, coming down the gastrointestinal tract, and it would take a little while to come through the cells, so it can open up between the cells, allow the glucose to come in, but then as, and this will happen for several minutes, and then it will close up again, the gap junctions between the epithelial cells will close up. When that happens and the bugs and chemicals come actually into the body, the immune system has to spend effort and energy on these. Okay, and, and 
not so well it's difficult to say but it has to have something like that to prevent the immune system from tackling these hard shell grass seeds as they're going past because wheat for example uh in any gluten will create a zonulin response in every single person that eats it and it will open up some of the gap junctions in the gut and allow bugs and chemicals to go into the body then the immune system has to take reserves and denature those things that have got inside the body and that has got to use the lymph system and the lymph system swells and etc and the seeds will then pass through probably it increases their ability to survive as they pass through the gastrointestinal tract if they upset the immune system um, and that's one way that they're doing that's an idea it's never been proven it's an idea um, it's certainly become popular. Well, yes, because then mm. if you pull the gluten out, that you're not stimulating a zonulin response and you'll lose a lot of the, the um, mesenchymal lymph, lymph um, that, that, that response that you get. So is that lymph. what causes that bloat? Well, what happens is if these things get in inside the small intestine, the immune system needs extra fluid in the lymph system. So what you'll do is you'll feel thirsty, but you won't urinate and the lymph nodes will swell up and you'll find that it's pushing on your belt and with some people even further. And then the immune system can use the lymph system to denature whatever's coming behind the small intestine. Wow. So it's a protective act, uh, action that um, unbutton my top. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> well, that's what's happening under there. Well, that's right. But, the, but then when it handles that, which could be 24 hours or so, or could be a couple of days, then you find that you're not thirsty anymore and your urination is a lot more and the whole lot goes down. You'll notice this going up and down. And people who have this really large belly with, well, there'll be some fat, unconstituted fat around the lymph nodes because they're never going down. Now, you imagine if you eat gluten for breakfast and then for lunch and then mid-afternoon and then dinner at night and then something before you go to bed, you're all the time stimulating the gluten response to open up the gap junction. And what will happen is you'll have this real job of trying to keep a flat tummy because your lymph nodes are just swelling up all the time. Mm. And so, is this where the genetics plays in? Because some people are like skin and bones and eat gluten morning, noon and night. Well, that's right. And, and that will have to do with the efficiency of their immune system, not having to use the lymph system to the degree that it's doing in somebody who's not as well. Mm -hmm. So there's immune system work to do as well if we want to at least have these sorts of foods as an every now and then situation. Well, well, that's true. What I was just describing there is called immune acclimatization. Because um, if you're eating say we're just taking gluten but there can be agglutinins that create this response that are in plants as they go through too but what if you eat this regularly all the time day after day after day the immune system just allocates resources to inside the small intestine gut to neutralize these particular extra bugs and chemicals coming into the body and then at, at some stage the lymph system will start to swell um, you know if this goes on for years um, so that's immune acclimatization. Um, and as people get older, even if they're young and they're nice and flat, eventually they're going to start getting this lymph response that comes out. Mm -hmm. okay. So we have immune senescence, immune scarring, immune acclimatization, and then you've got immune exhaustion, which is around cancers. Wow. Okay. Uh, and so 
what is it about, I just want to stay with grains because this topic comes up a lot in chat groups and, and uh, what is the aspect, is it, is it the, the serotonin production in the gut that links the psychological either anxiety or depressed kind of blah feeling after eating some of these foods that affect the junctions in our gut? Okay, I would, let's, let's. <laughs> I feel like you're one of those guests, Bill, that I feel a three-part series coming on. <laughs> we'll, we'll shift the discussion a little bit to fructose. Okay. Um, grains are very high in fructose, uh, except rice. Rice is high in fructans, which are chains of fructose, and those chains of fructose get broken down mostly in the ascending colon um, and then, then bypass the liver. What do you know about fructose? Well, uh, I know that it's extremely addictive, can, can be <laughs> yeah. quite taxing on the liver if we overdo it, uh, can then upset vitamin D production if we're eating too much of it in winter. Uh, that's my little brief synopsis. I think you yeah, should that, take it from there. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, if you look up, if you just want to look up the internet somewhere, you'll find that fructose is called an hepatotoxin. It's a liver toxin. It's really toxic for humans. And you wouldn't think that because everybody's trying to eat fructose all the time in fruit and, and high fructose corn syrup and this. Grains and fruit are very high in fructose. Now, fructose is a, has the same chemical formula as glucose, um, but glucose has a six ring structure and fructose has a five ring structure. When you eat glucose and galactose, for example, they come into the body, they go straight into the body. There's no problems getting them into the body. Galactose is converted in the base of the small intestine um, into glucose, which goes through the hepatic portal vein into the liver. Then the liver use, utilizes glucose, change blood sugar storage and does everything it has to do with glucose. Fructose, when it comes into the body, won't go through into your body because it's too toxic. And so we have GOLT4 carriers. We have these molecules, uh, there's two or three types of molecules which will bind to the fructose and bring it into the body. Now, if you don't... If you <laughs> it needs a security escort. <laughs> <laughs> if you could think about that. Yep, okay. And, and if you run out of these molecules in the small intestine and you keep eating fructose, it won't go into the body. It goes down to the colon and you get what's called fructose intolerance. Uh, fructose malabsorption, not intolerance, malabsorption. And if you're, you'll bloat out and you'll pass wind and there'll be all sorts of problems. If you go to your doctor, they do a blood test, a hydrogen, sorry, a hydrogen breath test. And if it comes up positive, they say, you don't have enough of these um, molecules in your small intestine to take the fructose into the body, cut your fructose levels down and cut them down to a point where you don't get any bloating, where no fructose goes through to the colon. So junk foods, they start with free sugar, uh, et cetera. Then eventually it's going to be fruits and, and then grains, then eventually vegetables, depending on how bad it is. But when the fructose goes into the body, you need an aldolase ISO-A enzyme to convert it over to glucose. And that's fine. Then it'll go from glucose into your liver through the portal vein. But if you, if you have problems producing that enzyme in your small intestine, then it'll go through to the liver as fructose. Now, the it's so toxic to our liver, our liver produces aldolase ISO-B enzymes. And these enzymes will convert the fructose up to the six ring structure of glucose. And then it goes straight to fat. And it doesn't go into making up your blood glucose at all. And that's where about 
14 or 15 years ago, they started really hooking up between fructose and obesity as the actual sugar that creates obesity, not so much the glucose. But if you don't have these enzymes in your liver or you've only got them there partially, it's called fructose intolerance or hereditary fructose intolerance if you have very few or partial fructose intolerance if when your liver plays up, it doesn't produce these enzymes. So if you've got fructose intolerance, then the fructose comes out of the liver still intact. It hasn't been converted to glucose. It'll cross the blood brain barrier. Now it's so toxic to our brain that we have aldolase ISO-C enzymes in our brain to convert it to glucose. And if we run out of those, then the two networks of the brain, the default mode network and the central executive network or task positive, task negative networks, they go out of sync. Now, when they go out of sync, three things tend to occur. People will get emotional upset occur all over the place. So they get lots of negative emotions and they can't figure out why. They'll get short term memory loss. So they'll go for exams and they'll go, yeah, I studied that. But the answer is I can't get it. Then after the exam, it comes along. They'll feel poor about themselves. Their self-definition will go down. They'll get chatter within their head, inconsequential chatter that goes around and around and around. And, and they feel pretty awful about that. So you start getting all of these. Um, it's psychoimmune kind of responses, it well, sounds well, like. Well, it's a, it's a psycho liver response. Yeah, a psycho liver, yeah. And, and yeah. then people have problems dealing with other people and dealing with life just because the chemistry of the brain's out. Um, I've, I've been a hypnotherapist for 35 years. It's difficult to hypnotize people who've got fructose problems frying their brain. You've got to use all sorts of techniques. But okay, so fructose doesn't... <laughs> Do you get them off the fructose within that hypno well, session? Well, <laughs> Sounds the like they could use it. Well, yeah. <laughs> when you look at it, if your partner comes home drunk, you don't, you can't counsel them, right? It's just impossible. You wait for the next morning and then give it to them, right? Um, if somebody comes in and they need psychological work or they need counselling, the first thing is check their brain chemistry. If their brain chemistry is out, you can't do any, or it's very, very difficult to actually to pinpoint these things. So people who are counsellors, people who are doing EMDR, um, even NETs or, you know, even hypnotherapy and a lot of these psychological therapies, Psychotherapy, for example, if the brain's out in its chemistry, you're only going to get a partial response. But people aren't educated about how to get the right brain chemistry and then help people out with their counselling. So between what's happening in the gut with the bacteria and what's happening with the fructose, our brain is really sensitive to some plant foods. Makes sense. Makes absolute sense. Yeah, well, I've and been pushing, yeah, pushing this stuff. I've done thousands and thousands of trials with that. And in this book, in my latest book, I, I give two chapters, or well, one whole chapter to fructose and the problems that occur. It's not glucose. It's, it's not galactose, it's fructose. So in sugar, which is 50% sucrose, 50% fructose, it's the fructose which is the problem. And fructose is also a problem in cancer. Um, as well as glucose, but fructose has a slightly different response in cancer cells. But so it's a, a bit of a problem. Now, when, when you think that humans didn't evolve on fructose, you have a look at Australian Aboriginal people, right? Heritage people. They don't have the enzymes for alcohol in their liver. You've heard about that. But they do not have large amounts 
of aldolase iso B enzymes for fructose in their liver. How do you get alcohol in nature? By fermenting fruits. Yeah, you put moulds at the end of the fruiting season on the fruits and the moulds cause alcohol. Well, there were no real fruits in Australia. There were no real fruits in Africa. So our ancestors on that line didn't produce the enzymes in their liver. Yeah, there but was no they, need to. Yeah, no, they didn't need to. But then when they moved to um, and we definitely had the ability to do them because of our ancestor going back six million years, eating fruits and plants. So our, our body could do that, um, whereas dogs and cats can't do that. For example, carnivores, true carnivores can't do that. But by the time people got to South Asia, East Asia, um, East Europe, there were lots of more fruits. And so over a period of thousands of years, they evolved these enzymes in their liver, small intestine and into their brain. But having said that, I still get people who are European heritage who will have problems in their brain because of their inability of their liver to denature the fructose. And this is dementia and ADHD and um, schizophrenia, bipolar, psychotic episodes. A lot of that, a percentage of that is fructose. And, and if you can do fructose trials and remove that and you do trials using graphs and controls and you figure out, aha, when my liver is playing up, which you just palpate because it'll have pain, um, then I keep the fructose down. When the liver's good, I can take the fructose up and I can handle life much better and, and feel better about myself, value myself more and get on with life in a better way. Wow. What a powerful uh, level of awareness to take our parenting to as well, those of us who are parents. <laughs> mm. Yes, well, you, you as a parent then, you take your kids along to a party and they come back and they're wired, right? Well, it doesn't matter how much you say to them, you could beat them till they're blue. Um, <laughs> although you don't want to do that. You have to put them in a room and let them, you know, detox, if you like, let everything settle down. And you see it everywhere. You know, um, in, in my book, I wrote a little story, which I observed and I knew the people. And it went something like this Saturday morning. Mum and dad took these two kids. She was 10 and her brother was eight, uh, two kids along to uh, Coles or Woolies or somewhere. And when they came out, dad wanted to have a coffee. And so he said, well, look, grab a table over there. I'll get the coffee. I'll get you a cup of tea. And kids, I'll, I'll get you a fruit juice. Now, he didn't give them a little fruit juice. He got them a big one. Now, what happened was the girl was there. And I, I found out this later. But the girl was there. And she looked across from where she was sitting. And there was a toy store. And she said to herself, I'm going to go over to that toy store at the end of this and just see what's in the window. So half an hour later, they finished up and dad says, let's go, right? And then she knew there was something really important that she had to do, but she couldn't remember it. And this is what happens with fructose, starts to fry the memory. So she crossed her arms and she sat there and she went, Mrr. she wasn't going to do it. So her dad just grabbed onto her arm and next minute she kicked the chair out and she's on the floor and she's kicking and screaming and they couldn't figure out why she'd changed from this perfect little girl to being this monster within half an hour and 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 you've seen that at shopping centers and that's the fructose getting through to the brain and frying the brain and creating all sorts of social and memory problems for that person wow and so then once it's in fight or flight it then goes into freeze and shut down and and can't that, connect awesome. and rationalize and all yeah. of those things that help you then move through those situations well, well yes that's mm. true alex you see there are 
some some babies when they're born oh, when they be starting to become infants and move on to childhood and they're coming off the breast it's interesting the aboriginal mothers one of the things that they do as the children being introduced to solids they'll crack a wallaby's head open take the brain out and feed the brain to the children or to these infants right and you don't have to cook brain if you've ever had brain it just dissolves in your mouth and when you look at the protein fat carbohydrate um uh, levels in brains in your average brain it's the same as in breast milk in the pretty well the same within within the same range um, and they they keep that fat protein carbohydrate as they move then through to organ tissue um, with the children and so they 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 don't introduce all these complex chemicals um, to the bodies of young children um, if you get a baby and mum puts fruit in its mouth and it's say 20 months of age and the baby spits it out straight away, mum usually tries again to put it back in. But the chances of it having hereditary fructose intolerance increase if a baby is spitting the fructose out when you first put it in. And if mum continues putting the fruit in over a period of, you know, a couple of days, eventually the fruit will go down into the body, go through into the liver. The liver can't process it, process the fructose if it is, um, if they've got fructose intolerance, if they don't have the enzyme, goes into the brain, fries the brain, and the baby becomes addicted to fructose and will want fruit and fruit juice and fast food and breads and cakes and biscuits and everything like that. And so then they will end up as fructose addicts. Okay, now, it's reasonably well reported in the literature that by the time a child like that gets to five or six, they have on the edge of um, cirrhosis of the liver. Okay, now when they go to school, um, then they can have all sorts of learning problems because under stress, if they go into an exam, even if they've studied um, the night before and they go, yep, the answer to that question is, the answer is, the answer is nothing, it's blank. And so they'll fail exams and yet they could be really intelligent and they will start having problems with people or the teachers or various ones because the brain is being fried also in your default mode network and you're not socially interacting and feeling free to interact and build your interactions and your relationships up because the fructose just fries it. And so people like this can, whether they have to flip into extroverted or introverted traits or even over semi psychopathic or even into a slight depression. Um, the, the problem is that they can't be within the normal range and they always feel sort of out. Now I've had some really, you know, I've, I've worked with this for a long, long time. And um, I, I've seen people's lives totally destroyed where their brains will not grow because of the fructose and they can't discipline themselves. They can't hold down jobs. Money slips through their fingers. They can't have good relationships. Um, there's just a plethora of problems that come out of, eating too much fructose when you do not have the enzymes in the liver. Mm -hmm. So what about popping a digestive enzyme? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know how that would work. I've never, I've never looked. I'm at not a quick fix person, but I had to ask just in case it um, really is a quick fix. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'd have to really think about that. Mm. I, I, I'm not sure whether it could be done. Um, yeah, or yeah, at yeah. least as a support mechanism. I mean, if you think of 
if they're addicted, let's say, and then it's teenagers who are now able to go out and do all sorts of things that you don't see. Uh, and that no matter how you bookend your breakfast and your dinner, sometimes they stop showing up for dinner and then it's, you know, KFC or whatever it is they're having out there. Teenagers in my limited experience so far tend to go straight for the fastest, quickest and cheapest forms of energy, which is ultra processed food and all their friends are doing it. And therefore um, you go with your tribe, especially as a teen. Well, well, you know, that could be somebody could make themselves really rich if they came up with a a tablet which had (laughs) elderlase ISO B enzymes in it Mm. and wasn't denatured by the stomach. So they drink the drink, take one of these and um, and it pulls their fructose levels down to normal, if you like, within a normal range. Fancy going into business, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm too old for that now. I've, I've done my businesses. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Very interesting. But at least frames the importance for what percentage of people would you say are lacking this enzyme after 35 years odd of clinical practice? Um, well, firstly, uh, uh, on one extreme, Heritage Australian Aboriginal people. Okay, so... Even though alcohol's a problem, but beer and wine are worse. Um, uh, for example, if fructose fries a brain, you can still go and have a game of soccer because it doesn't change your coordination like alcohol does. It just fries your social abilities and your sense of self. And so that could make you really angry and upset when you're playing that game of soccer. Right? Um, okay, so that's on one extreme. You have people like that, uh, Eskimos and those very traditional types of people have problems with the fructose you have people who pass exams with with these fabulous memories to become a gp to become a doctor what you have to do is get 98 percent in your exams um, because that's they they don't select people to be doctors in our society on them wanting to be servants to other people they look at their ability to memorize things and regurgitate them and focus in a particular direction and be amenable to that direction. That's, that's the major criteria um, uh, that I would see that you, you're making practitioners out of. And, and then you get some great practitioners and then you get some lousy ones. But usually they have a brain that is not affected by fructose because their liver is so efficient and their enzyme structure in the brain, the liver and the small intestine is excellent. Now, to answer your question, um, I've never done a survey to, to figure this out, but if I try and just, let me see, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I know you're a scientific that. man, but I'm sure yeah, you so could say majority of people by X or, you know, this is okay. what I've found. Hmm. Um, about 30% is a pre-hypothesis idea about how many people will have this. And then I will um, also suggest that when people are tired, when they're sick, when they're run down, when their liver has a problem with an immune response, the fructose goes up. Now, you need your autonomic nervous system, which directs your immune system, has so much control by the default mode network of the brain. It's you're not in control of it. Okay, so you understand the autonomic nervous system. It, it is there to increase immune inflammatory responses and decrease immune inflammatory responses in the trunk of the body around particular organs. And also the auto, autonomic nervous system 
lifts up the function of organs and decreases the function of organs. Um, and it does that by its two networks, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nerves, one coming out of the brain down through the spine to all the organs. And that's called the fight flight. That's the sympathetic nervous system. And that ramps up um, inflammatory responses and organ function, but it won't come down unless you use the other part, the parasympathetic. The parasympathetic comes out 10th cranial nerve down the front over and goes to all the organs and it's called rest digest. And it can only really go down. So one goes up, one goes down and these two modulate really well. And when they're modulating well, you feel this real flow in your body and everything feels really relaxed. And the immune system is really excellent looking after getting rid of cancer cells and getting rid of bugs and chemicals around particular organs. And when they go out, you get sensations in your body. You might get butterflies in the tummy when you get anxious and about the future. That's the modulation has gone out. And you, you, it's not like a musculoskeletal nervous response back to your brain, which you can feel. It's something a bit weird. It's in the tummy. And that has to do with your thinking about the future and getting worried or anxious about the future. And the anxiety is a disruption to flow, a disruption to these nerves here. And that occurs when the default mode network and the central executive network go out of sync and you get these upset emotions in your trunk from your throat to your groin. There's five of the main areas. Okay, so the thing is that if you say to your tummy, stop, it doesn't stop. Um, you know, the, the response is outside. You're, let me backtrack one step. When you're conscious, when you wake up and you're conscious, you have control of the musculoskeletal nervous system. You want to pick a pen up, you do something in your brain, you pick it up. You want to move your body, you do something in the brain through the brain and central nervous system to actually do these things. But the autonomic nervous system, you're not un in any control. You can't force it to do anything. Um, and this autonomic nervous system is greatly influenced by the uh, the way the modulation that you get between your default mode network and the central executive network of the brain and they are influenced by plants fructose we've talked about but let's go back onto foods all plants change your brain chemistry but meat and fat don't all plants coffee changes your brain tea changes your brain street drugs do tobacco does they're all plants and sugar changes your brain sugars in carbohydrates so then you turn around and say well mushrooms avocados and lettuces don't have carbohydrates aha but they've got lots of other toxins in them that can affect the brain so if you've got mental problems then you've got to go well do i have a problem with some plants meat and fat don't change the brain okay so then you get you get this autonomic response which is directing the immune system um so when you're looking at cancer for example cancer formation what you're doing is looking at partly how has the autonomic nervous system been directing CD8 T lymphocyte cells to remove cancer cells? Because every day your adaptive immune system has got to remove this many cancer cells from your body. Otherwise they'll form a tumor. And if, if you're only producing this many, then that, well, that's fine. You've got a big buffer. But what happens if as you get older, you produce more of these cancer cells? Well, the buffer gets less. What happens if you start to go into immune senescence? Oh, the immune system's is a bit more fragile. What if you get immune scarring? Down it's going. And what if you're getting immune acclimatization? 
while it drops below and you start forming these little tumors on and off. And then the immune system has to allocate natural killer cells on the one hand and CD8 T cells on the other hand to start getting rid of these tumors, which they can do when they're tiny because they occur all the time. But when they get past a certain size, then the tumor can defend itself. Runaway train. Defend itself in some ways against your, your T cells, your, your cytotoxic T cells, CD8 T cells. Um, now, the CD8 T cells are directed by the autonomic nervous system. Now, this was discussed in the 1990s by Candace Pert in psychoneuroimmunology and, and this whole movement that started up around then. Um, so when people have cancer, one of the things you've got to try and do is just work with the autonomic nervous system. And you go, well, OK, got to get these two networks of the brain modulating really well. Well, you've got to then look at the plants that are creating a disruption for the modulation of these networks so that you can redirect the immune system and increase its efficiency at knocking off cancer cells. So why do so many cancer patients and heart disease patients get put on plant-based diets? As far as I can see, they haven't looked into the biology of this. Mm. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. My gosh, Bill, we could talk for hours more, <laughs> but uh, I uh, value your time and the, the time is running away from us. Can I ask you one more question then? How do, and this is probably quite a big one, but how do we start to navigate our way into a signature diet? I know your book is obviously going to help us explore that in, in great depth, but could you give the listeners today some basic tips to foray into it because no one's just going to want to get on with their day as they were before after this conversation. So I feel like people need a little something until that book arrives in the post to, to help us do this work for ourselves. Okay, Alex, um, excuse my being a bit complex here. Uh, but if you're a vegetarian and you really love being a vegetarian, you stick at being a vegetarian. Okay, great. Okay. Nice and simple. If, if you love being a carnivore and you're prepared to stick with it, uh, great if you want to do that. Okay. It's for the people who mix proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the, the vast majority of people. Um, and if, if, their stomach, or if their digestive tract has not gone down, but their immune system is starting to go down, then it's best to create a signature diet for the immune system. It's best to unload the immune system by removing certain toxins that those foods put in. And then you have to lift up the immune system if you wish. You can use herbal medicine to do that. Then you need to refocus the immune system depending on your problem. And if you can do that, then you're going to be 20 years younger than other people around you if you can do that. Now, a signature diet, it's mainly for the immune system. It's not so much for the digestive tract, although it will work for the digestive tract. So the basis is to go back to what our hunter-gatherer ancestors ate that we evolved on, because that's what our gastrointestinal tract will, well, if it's working perfectly, it'll, um, it'll digest really well on the meats and the fats and cooking them will just make it easier. Okay. And and cooking them well won't make it easier. It's like with children, little babies, when they're being introduced to vegetables, you cook the buggery out of the vegetable. And then you go to granny and she cooks the buggery out of the vegetables, but people in between don't have to. 
But the reason we do it for kids is the immune system is not competent yet. And the reason granny's doing it, her immune system is losing competency. And the people in the middle from 14 to 35 can eat any diet, any combination and say it works. And it will work because everything's perfect. Mm. So probably one of the most dangerous join the club diets to follow is the one, the signature program developed by a 28-year-old. Oh, yes. <laughs> Who's going to be fine no matter <laughs> what they eat. Yeah. Yeah, they, unless they've seen thousands of clients and can actually take their confirmation bias and put it to one side and let people do their own experiments, um, that's something you've got to watch out for. Confirmation bias in scientists, right? It just leads people astray. Um, and you, if you're going to do a signature diet, you don't want to use science. You want to use the, the concepts of science, how to do it. You want rigor. You want repeatability but you don't want to adhere to science because science is looking at a population truth and you're an individual and you don't know where you are on that. Um, In the population truth landscape. That's right. Absolutely. You could be on the horns of the yeah. curve. You could be somewhere, right? Okay. So the basis then would be meat and fat if you wish to want to eat it, right? Um, that's why if you're a vegetarian, well, you don't want to eat it. So you don't have it. So meat and fat become as the stable part of a signature diet. And that depends on, your stomach having really good enzymes. So you've got to be able to have no pains anywhere in the three areas you push on your tummy. No pains. It's got to be functioning normally. Then what you need to do is, so, so you take your diet, which is a normal diet, and then you'll go into a ketone style diet. <clears throat> and you need graphs and controls to do this because they're delays, duration, combination factors of results that occur. What Once do you mean by graphs and controls if we're well, doing you, this you ourselves? Change, yeah, you should never change your diet without gathering data on why it's changing. So, so for over 30 years, I've used graphs um, which rate symptoms over time. Um, and then people, some people are too hard on themselves when they graph, some are too soft. So you use a control and that helps you get correct data over time for you to answer a particular question. Is it, is it healthier for me to transit from a normal diet, like a CSIRO diet, to a ketone diet? That's the question you ask yourself and you do your own little experiment around it and you've got to gather data. Well, you can't keep it in your head and a diary doesn't work. You've got to actually get data to look at delays, durations, and when you combine things, you get these responses. So they're the three things that you're looking at. And delays can be, um, when you reintroduce new food can be up to 10 days after you eat the food that you're going to get the response. And most people don't understand that. And then durations, for example, if a celiac stops taking gluten, there's no change to symptoms for six weeks. So you go, well, I got to go six weeks before the changes start and then start to get better. Well, if you only go for four weeks and you go, I didn't get any change, it doesn't work for me, then you defeat yourself. So if you're going into this, you've got to understand a few parameters here and you've got to gather your data and you can eyeball your data. Now it's only applicable to you. It's an anecdotal study. It's only applicable to you. But if you use rigor, you'll be able to tell what's happening with your body. The medical system's not going to do it. Nobody's going to do it. You have to do it yourself. Okay, so you get this basis. You go back into history of humans and say the basis should be meat and fat. And, uh, how much will I take? I don't know. I'll have to work it out. And then you want to be able at your age, say 40 years of age, 50, 60, 70, 80, you want to be able to, to understand how you have to cook some plants, how, whether you can have them raw or partially cooked or fully cooked, 
and produce no problems for your body. And so what you do is you add in a series of vegetables or even grains, salads, fruits, nuts, and you add them to your existing base, which is our hunter-gatherer ancestry. And that becomes your signature diet. Okay, so you might end up with 12 vegetables you can eat when you're healthy. And then you know that when you get the flu or you're, you know, you've, you've got stressed or something, you pull out a couple of these because they're going to give you a response a week down the track or something like that. You can work it out really, really precisely if you want to. But then you must remember as you age, your body changes again. So you've got to be on top of some of this stuff. And, and one of the things I was going to say, when you go to Europe and you eat grains in Europe, you can eat more grains in Europe and have a higher volume without getting an intolerance and, and a, a higher volume and you won't, get, um, uh, you won't get a digestive problem by eating European grains. If you come back to Australia within a week of coming back to Australia and eating Australian grain products, you'll end up with gut symptoms and then your immune problems and everything else. This has been well documented because Australian grains are the most modified grains in the world. Started with William Farrer in 1890 and then the CSIRO in the 1960s. And recently, about 10 years ago, the CSIRO also modifying grains in Australia for the harsh conditions of Australia. And how it's modifying them is genetically selecting and modifying um, the grains now um, so that they're more resistant to rust molds, drier conditions and all the problems that occur in drier conditions. And so by making them more resistant to insects and bugs, they make them more toxic to humans mm. okay. and that could be why we're having more and more problems with them and we're seeing kids have more problems exactly. with them even if they're not in this senescence period of their lives yeah that's true and mm. it's a complex sort of thing together once you understand that um it, it, it's you know it starts to make sense why we've got this such variability and you don't want to take a simple approach to foods if you're looking at the individual mm. Yes, you, there's too many things going on to, to give them good health by just generalising to them. Well, Bill, thank you for um, calling upon us to all have a look at how we're eating and how we're feeling about how we're eating uh, and make some adjustments, do some experiments. Uh, that can frustrate our polarised world in the uh, lack of simplicity there. It is a difficult, complex task but you've certainly given us an, given us enough evidence to support the fact that it is an absolutely worthy cause to living our best and uh living well through to old age which is something our society is not currently doing a great job of so i really appreciate you joining me on the show i hope everyone grabs your book we've put the details in the show notes uh for where you can get that and uh, thanks again, Bill. Brilliant, brilliant interview. Well, look, well, Alex, it's so, so wonderful to talk with you. I'd love to talk with you again, just over a cup of coffee um, and, and listen to what you've got to say. I've been just talking too much, but that's the idea of it. And I, I just want to thank you for having me on. An absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's Stuart S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. 
uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the Explore tab and you'll see Join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.